Welcome to the Dream Chasers, Brits in America podcast, supported by Bel Air. I'm your host, Letizia Lee. This podcast is a series of captivating interviews with Brits who have moved to the States to chase their dreams, their inspiring journeys, and the things they've been up to. Today, I'm catching up with, I feel like I need a drum roll. Grammy nominee, music producer, songwriter, and composer extraordinaire, Harmony Samuels. Harmony's worked with a strong roster of amazing clients. I don't even think strong does it. Like Janet Jackson, Kelly Rowland, Ariana Grande, Rick Ross, some of the UK's finest, like Chipmunk, Craig David. I mean, I really could just go on. Mm. <laughs> Harmony. Yeah. Welcome. Well, go on. <laughs> it's so good to talk to you. It's good to talk and to you. good friend of mine. Of course, 10 years in the middle. Maybe more now. I think it's a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, like 15, maybe. Time flies. It really does. So, I know you. Yeah. But for those that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been living in the U.S. Uh, well, I work in reverse. I, okay. I, I lived in the U.S. for 10 years. I moved to Los Angeles in 2010. Um, I moved to North Hollywood via my publishing deal that I got through a super producer called Rodney Darkchild Jerkins. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who knows him or know, you may not know him, but you definitely know his work. The Boy Is Mine, Brandy, uh, If You Were My Love, J-Lo, and When I Grow Up, Pussycat Dolls. I mean, it's 20, 30 years of hits for him. You Rock My World, Michael Jackson. And uh, he was definitely one of my top five best ever to do it producers who mentored me from a distance. And so when I had the opportunity to meet him and he offered me a, a situation to be a part of his his company, I, I jumped to it. So he moved me to Los Angeles. I would say my plan was never to be in Los Angeles per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transition was more so I need to get to the States, but he told me to come to Los Angeles. And it was the best idea. He knew better, and uh, I listened, and, I, and it worked out for me. Before that, I lived in Tottenham. North London. North London. But I wasn't born and raised in North London, which is which is funny how I got to North London was... Okay, let me reverse it. So I was born in at Westminster, right? And then I grew up in uh, a place called Broccoli. You grew up in Broccoli? How did I not know this? I went to school up the street called John Stainer. And... Uh, I, I was there until I was nine years old. Okay. And so then my parents, you know, especially being immigrants from Nigeria and mm-hmm. trying to, like, raise their child in a better environment, obviously felt like South London, Peckham, New Cross was a... was a, was a it, yeah. was, it, was, it was rough. So mm-hmm. uh, they moved us out to a place called Thamesmead. Yes. Just out by... Just outside of the London community. Yeah, Just yeah, outside yeah. of South East. So... Right, it's right um, near Greenwich. Yeah, mm. it's a little bit more of a community. It's like, quieter. It's, it's, it was. It wasn't Peckham. It, it wasn't Peckham. Mm. It's Peckham now. Mm. But, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, on my street when we moved there, so in I was nine years old and we moved to this neighborhood and I was like, whoa, what? It, it felt like I was in a movie or something. Mm. We was the only, there was only three black families out of like 200, mm. 200 homes on that I'm strip. Surprised. Um Back then. Um, so my father figured out some money, bought a house and moved us out the country, mm. moved us out to country, right? It was mm. country at the time because uh, you, it would take a bus 
I think it would be 178 to get back into town. It came every 30, 45 minutes. Yeah, so if you missed mission. one, it was a mission, right? So between the ages of 10 to 16, I lived in I, I lived in the country and I went to school in Bexley Heath called St. Columbus. Um, yeah, so I got familiar. I always thought you were from Tottenham. Well, I mean, I, it's weird because my life kind of got split up between, if you think about it, you know what I mean? Like I'm just turning 40, so I've kind of like... 10 years of my life was in South. 10 years mm-hmm. of my life was in country or half of it, like mm-hmm. seven years of it. And then 12 years of my life was in North. So in retrospect, most of my growing up and my mature experiences happened in North. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I was a kid in, in South and I was a kid yeah. in, in, you know what I mean? But the the good thing about having those, having that kind of 360 degree uh type of life is that I knew each area and I, yeah. and, I and I was good. You know what I'm saying? I yeah. understood what it was to be in South. I knew what it was to be from country mm. and, and I knew what it was to be on the North side. Yeah, and, you know, and, and then my, I, when I interned on, the, when I was in North, I interned on Northwest side. So mm-hmm. I was in Halsden a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I understood. So I got a nice geographic span of, yeah. of London. You know yeah. what I mean? And considering that like, London is a really diverse place and it has been, diverse right. for a very long time. Yeah. And so you were a musical director at your church yeah. at the age of 12. I, maybe younger, yeah. So tell us a bit more about that. Uh, when, when, you're, when you're brought up in a really, like, strict biblical home settings, right, you're a product of your environment. You know, church was just, a, just like going to school, mm-hmm. just like, you know, going to gym practice or whatever, church was a lifestyle in it. So mm. we would go to church frequently. I think I was born going to church. Yeah, I, I believe that. Like, I don't remember my parents not going to church. So mm. obviously I was fascinated with music. And at early age of four, I was already playing the drums, right? So four to nine years old, t- 10 years old, I'm watching everybody. Like, I'm in my, like, I'm intrigued by everything that's going on. Like, what's she doing? What's he doing? Why is he singing? Okay, mm. he sings a different note. She sings a different you note. Oh, I can sing it. those. And I I just learned by sight mm. and by my ears. And once I realized the gift that I mm-hmm. possessed, I just wanted to be in it all the time. And so by the time I was 12 years old, the church was like, he might as well do it. He pretty much knows all our parts. He knows all their parts. He plays everything. <laughs> Like, mm. he might as well just teach us the way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I wasn't, like, the leader. They always had a, a, an adult. But when yeah, it came yeah. to, like, the minister of music, yeah, I, that's what I did. That's pretty incredible at such a young age. You think? You know, I think so. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that I really believe is everyone has a superpower. Yeah. Everything has, everyone has something that they're naturally good at without even trying. Yeah. And we learn at different stages of our lives. Some people find out when they're really young, like you did, some work it out when they're much older so I I do think it's incredible that you were so young and you were given a platform to you know nurture your musical gifts and interests I'm grateful for it for sure I I don't think I would be who I am today if I didn't have it you know what Mm. I'm saying Um, it's one of the strongest uh, foundations a, a person could have you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. at a young age, by by 14, I knew I knew what I wanted to be. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people was like, when did you realize you wanted to be a, 
a producer. I was like, well, that's what I was gonna ask you. Well, I was fourteen years old, so you, you know, so I, I, um, I'd never been in a music studio prior yeah. to that. Um, I'd seen replicas of studios through TV. So you'd watch yeah. a Michael Jackson video and be like, oh, that's a studio. Wow, mm-hmm. what does those big buttons do? And what does that do? And what does it sound like? And you always kind of imagine. So I, I was I was very imaginative. Like, I, I lived in my imagination, like, a lot of the time. I made records in my imagination. I pictured my future in my imagination. I did so much in my imagination, mm. right? Especially because I was... a. Uh, as outgoing as I was and very outspoken and very social in school with my friends, I was also very introverted. So I would stay hours in my bedroom, mm-hmm. quiet. My mom's like, oh, what's he doing? You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't, I'd be watching the TV or drawing or writing out what I think things are going to be like mm-hmm. or figuring out how to play One Sweet Day by Boys to Men and Mariah Carey on the piano. It, it, I just loved that space because I always could strengthen my skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were always developing yourself. You always developing yourself. So uh, by the time I was 14, I ended up going into... So we go to secondary school. Secondary school is always like the biggest transition because you kind of go from being this little infant who no mm-hmm. one really cared about to like figuring out who you're going to be. Well, that's yeah. how I felt, in it? Yeah. So. My it's a big jump. Yeah, 11, 12, we go to secondary school. 13, 14, we in second year, right? Mm-hmm. So my music teacher, obviously, we developed past the first year. Second year, she's, like, introducing us to new things, right? So she introduced me to this program called Notator, which we call Logic now, by the way. It's okay. crazy. So Notator was a... So back in the day, I'm saying my age, but... <laughs> Uh, we used to have a, this thing called an Atari. Oh yeah. And so she, I always wondered what the Atari was doing. I was like, did she play game? Do they play games in the class? And come to find out, it was a music program where you could create your own composure on music. Oh, I think of Atari as that tennis game, but I didn't no, know. No, but yeah, yeah, but so did I. Okay. That's what I, I had, I had a Commodore sixty four, which was a version of All the right. Atari, and it did the same thing, but. She had it set up so you can create music. So mm-hmm. that was the first time I ever saw a computer and MIDI work together okay. with a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, she programmed the bass, she programmed the keyboard, she programmed the drums. And I was just like, you did that all by yourself? And I was hooked. It was like drugs. I was yeah. on it. Like from that day on, I was like, can I try? And mm. I remember one idea turned to 100 ideas, turned to... 2,000 ideas and I was in there every day morning, noon and night I'd go in there at lunch I'd go in there as soon as class was done and I didn't have and I had a like open window I just became addicted and then I think about seven months in she had asked uh, she's like can I hear some some of your stuff and I played it to her and she was like whoa you made this? and I was like yeah she was like man you have the ability to be an amazing composer right I was like, who? She's like a composer, a music producer. You should look it up. Mm-hmm. Hence where I discovered Quincy Jones. Now, you got to remember, Quincy Jones was ne- before that particular time that I discovered him, that he was a music producer. Quincy Jones was a famous guy who yeah. hung around Michael Jackson and famous people. That's mm-hmm. what I knew him for. I didn't know he made records. So when I discovered he, who he was, that's kind of where I was like, I want to be him. Okay. Whatever he did, I want to do. And the older I got, the more wiser I got because mm-hmm. I learned so much more. Loved his story, learned so much about him. And um, 
yeah, then obviously from him, Teddy Riley, then I started like every time I got an album cover, I would flip the album cover over mm-hmm. a CD and be like, who wrote credits. it? Who produced it? Produced by Roddy Jerkins, produced by Teddy Riley. And I was like, and I I didn't care about that. I could go infatuated with the behind the scenes of it. You know what I mean? Who the writers were, who the engineer were, who mixed it. I got so familiar with those names that the artists were no longer as important because I knew that's the world I was going to be in. So Mm -hmm. I educated myself to make sure I knew what the names were. So Mm -hmm. when I moved to Los Angeles 20 years later, I'm like, wow, I'm actually meeting some of these guys right now who I read your names. Like... In, in in booklets and it's like wow you're John Marie oh wow you're LaShawn Daniels you know what mm. I'm saying like these guys were were geniuses behind so fast forward to meeting Rodney Jenkins yeah how did that all come about because you were already producing in the UK yeah I was producing in the UK and and you know shout out to the UK because I would never be um, who I am without that foundation just mm. my musical knowledge my musical history the things I learned I don't think if I was born in every, any other country, I would have I would have the musical advantage that I have. Uh, Why is that? Because the UK is a melting pot of cultures and music, right? And so when it, even though we don't have the platforms and the outlets, that's a, two different things, right? Right. We, we had access to music. So mm-hmm. we had American music. My father had gospel. He had, I mean, gospel from everybody, from Kirk Franklin all the way down to... The Winans, right? Then he had country from Diana, from uh, uh, I forgot her name. Uh, what are their names again? Oh my goodness! Country. She 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 had a version of I Will Love You. She's the original Dolly Parton. Okay, Dolly yeah. Parton, Kenny Rogers, like he had a like thousands of country records. Then he had thousands of reggae records from Bob Marley to Shabaranks, and then mm-hmm. he had pop records. I had George Michael records. When he was in a band called Wham, Wake Me Up Before You Go Love Go. Me like, some Wham. like my father's record collection was so retarded. And then he had Fela Kuti. And then he had all mm-hmm. the African artists that no one really knows out here. And then he had like it was so big and he would play those records all day. And I'd be like, and I was learning everything. And then going, then we had obviously being in the South, South London. There was a sound in South London then, which was very bashment driven, very Mm. reggae driven, very, you know what I'm saying? Like soulful driven, like soul to soul, you know what I mean? And then moving to the thing, moving to country, right? Dartford, it was very band driven. So it was Oasis. It was Blur. Of course. It was Young and White Strike. Like, so I had my had split personalities because I was like playing in bands, but also Mm -hmm. a part of like hip-hop culture and then we had all the grime scene and mm-hmm. then we had garage garage a funky house and jungle was, even do you know what I mean so we did all of that drum and bass like we was a yeah. part, I, like I had such a diverse music knowledge yeah. Yeah. and because I was involved in all of it um just culturally and just my environment it was yeah. just I just had a melting pot so um the UK allowed me to kind of like build my musical knowledge and mm. build my new musical foundation which was a, I could never I don't think I, if I lived out here in Los Angeles I don't think I would have had the pleasure I think out here I, I, I can see it's very black and white it's like you're here and you know what I'm saying the the melting pot we had 
20 years ago in England, they're starting to kind of be open to it. It's weird, but what? But the thing is also in London, the the ability to succeed here is now happening in London where these young mm. kids are being entrepreneurs and really taking the ball by its horn. Yes, so definitely. it's like a switch trade off. Mm-hmm. Growing up in growing up in London was it was was cool. We lacked so much we lacked platforms, right? Mm. That was the biggest disadvantage. Yeah, so no matter how successful you were, it only had so much only so far it would go, right? And you know, the power of the internet, the internet made the world so much smaller, right? But back then, we didn't have the internet or we didn't have the internet the way we have it now, where mm-hmm. it's like, hey, man, America's up the street. I'll see you tomorrow type thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, there's a problem. I'm going home. Like, back then, it's like, America, that's a whole plan. The lessons, the life lessons, I worked on Choice FM a couple of times. You know, I, I worked as an intern in different studios and I cleaned floors and I, you know, I worked with Jazzy B, you know, Nelly Hoop. I worked with a bunch of you know, people in the UK, and I just wanted more. Mm. You know what I mean? I just, I wanted, I wanted more. You were hungry. I was very, very, I was determined. And uh, I guess I wanted to break the curse because I was like, I I just saw my fam, my parents struggle. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, a regular nine to five ain't going to get us out of this struggle. You know what I'm saying? We're going to get by, but Mm -hmm. to get out of that struggle where it's like, I don't live like this no Mm -hmm. more. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I was determined. I was very, very determined. And uh, once I realized I'd reached my ceiling in London and in England, and and the, the, one thing I do miss about the European side of things was, you know, I lived in Paris for a while. I lived in Scandinavia for a while. You know, I lived in a few different cities that allowed me to see culture in a different space. I was going to say because the culture in Paris is really different. Very, very different. London yeah, and very different. The further you go across Europe, yeah, I, you know, I stayed in um, uh, Marseille a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, so I've lived in Europe, outside of Europe, uh, outside of England, uh, in a few different places where I got to see, you know, how others survive. You know. It was still, it felt the same way in England. Like, it's like, it can only go so far. Like, mm. and then it kind of goes yeah. south. So my only option was to go where the heat was. And, and that was here. And, and uh, my big brother and mentor, his name's Dreddy. So Dreddy came from a huge crew called Soul Solid. And he made, uh, he had a huge record with uh, Lisa Mafia called uh, Lisa Mafia. Mafia. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so he was the producer for it. And uh, he was kind of like, I don't, let me never say kind of like, he was like our Dre for, the, for producers mm-hmm. in 2004. Because it was like, we had never seen anybody produce a hip hop record, go number one, do you know what I'm saying, in front of us. And be themselves. They yeah. were allowed to be culturally who they were. They mm-hmm. were pretending and had to be cleaned up to be, you know, polished and how poli- a record company like they normally be, do, right? So that they're marketable. And- right, right. So he became like a real big like icon to me, and then mm. uh, he kind of introduced me to getting myself outside of the UK market because mm. he he was coming out here and he he'd come down and he was working with Buster Rhymes and Lloyd and from G Unit and a bunch of other people and then my sister Estelle started making the transition when yeah. she popped up with John Legend and did the Kanye West American and I was just boy. like okay they they started to kind of let me know they, they, I felt like science 
mm. being thrown at me. Um, and then I had the opportunity to work with Deluxe, uh, Styles P, with another crew called, well, they were part of a crew called Eurogang. They were called Bronze and Black. And they were like the crew that got signed to Rockefeller, the first hip-hop crew that got, from the UK that got signed to Rockefeller. And then, so I was working with them. We did a song with In The Ghetto featuring Styles P. And just, just seeing Styles P in those times, he had just done Locked Up for ACOD. So mm. I was just like, yo. And signs were just pointing at me like, you got to make this move. So finally, I, met, I I started making trips to the States, not knowing what the hell I was doing. And somehow my footsteps were ordered to this man called Roddy Jenkins. And it's weird because I, I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. Serious? Yeah, because I wasn't... If someone said, like, how did you meet? I was like, well, firstly, I, I wasn't looking for him. I was looking to go to, like, a m- label. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I wanted, like, oh, I need a label. I need to go yeah. sign to a machine or whatever. Because that was the check. thing back then. It's like... Get signed to a label, right? Yeah. And um, so he's in a meeting with Jimmy Iovine, so he he tells me his story on how he met me, right? So I'm like, RJ, how did you meet me? Uh, how did you find that? He was like, so he was in a meeting with Jimmy Iovine. Jimmy Iovine obviously was uh, the, the CEO of Interscope Records, and mm-hmm. he had a meeting with Jimmy because they were talking about doing some stuff, and he said he kept hearing this music coming from the room next door. And in that room was my manager at the time, Matthew uh, Matt Williams was playing my record obnoxiously loud and mm-hmm. saying, I'm telling you, he's amazing. I love that tactic. <laughs> yeah. And so Rodney said he kept being distracted in the yeah. meeting because it kept disturbing him because he kept trying to figure out who that was. So, so he got up, he goes, he said, Jimmy, one second, I need to go to the bathroom. And he goes to the bathroom. As he goes to the bathroom, he pops his head in the room and says, yo, who's that kid? And uh, Matthew said, oh, some kid from London called Harmony. And he was like, well, wherever, wherever he is, is, is he in L.A.? He's like, yeah. He's like, he shouldn't leave L.A. until he sees me. Snap. And so, obviously, I end up meeting him. And then the rest is history. It was quite it was quite swift. And there's a whole thing that happened in between because I got discovered, I got told to come to L.A. to meet with someone else who was supposed to kind of, like, give me my opportunity, right? So... He kind of fobbed me off. Bumps in the road. Yeah. Mm. So I'm in the middle of Los Angeles. Like, why am I here? Like, why did I fly away from New York? So you were supposed to meet someone and it didn't happen? It happened, but he didn't really, he kind of like. You didn't get the reception that. He just, he weren't feeling me. Like he weren't, he weren't, he he wasn't, he he wasn't even that he wasn't feeling me. He didn't care from before I even had the meeting Mm -hmm. because he turned Mm -hmm. up to the meeting like obnoxiously late and was like, didn't even kind of, like, listen to my music. And that was the person that you came out here? To meet, to because meet. his boss told me to come and meet him. And so I leave the meeting, and then my manager was like, no, nah, we should meet with RJ. And I was like, who's RJ? And he kept saying, yeah, he's some big producer out here. And I was yeah. like, man, I, like, I, just, I don't want to meet <laughs> no Suge Knight dude who's going to try and frigging shake me down or whatever. Because, you know, you get all these stories. And then he said, nah. He was like, his name's... I said, what's his real name? He said, Rodney Jerkins. Hmm. I said, what? Rodney Darchard Jerkins? He's like, dude, that's it. That's him. He said, hmm. you know him? I said, do I know him? Do, do you know you? him? And then it uh, turns out... Um, turns out to be who I thought it was. And then the rest is history, man. He just... Rodney knew. Rodney knew, mm-hmm. man. Rodney knew. He, 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 he thought it. And 
he trusted his gut and he took a risk and then you know we we did we we we, we were partners for 10 years that's what's up yeah what was like the biggest challenge for you up in and moving to LA was there one there's loads of challenges i mean to move to Los to move to a whole other country is a challenge period mm-hmm. just to make that decision but yeah. it's interesting that you'd kind of Expose yourself a little bit to like leaving London, you know, France. Well, and... well, yeah. Look, the thing is, I always knew I wasn't gonna finish in London. I always knew yeah. that. Like, I mm. always knew from because it was like I just felt limited. Like, I felt like I couldn't be a hundred percent me. Like, I always felt like my mindset was way higher than you know. What I mean, I mm-hmm. would talk about being successful and wealthy, and people look at me weird. Like, I talk about being a millionaire, and people yeah. look at me. I would talk about, you know, owning things and doing things. And when we do this, and they would just be like, oh, it just seemed off or odd yeah. to them. I became part of that, you know, introvertness was because it's like I could tell people are uncomfortable when I speak in a particular space. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish I'd started my dream way earlier instead of following the system because I feel like I would have hit where I wanted to be sooner. Sooner, yeah. Um, such as life, it, these are the difficulties of growing up in that time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so moving to LA was 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 a big risk and a big change. And I wouldn't have done it if I didn't lose everything first. Okay. Right? So many reasons why people don't make decisions to make big risk riskful changes is because they're attached to things right they're like chains so i was engaged i'd been engaged at that time to someone who i was with for many many years uh i had a home that we both both owned together um i had my family you know what i'm saying Mm. and all your close connections uh, that's all i knew yeah right so to now up and leave to start a whole new life in a place I have no clue in. I got more to lose that way, right? That's a lot. So first change is my relationship ends. So so now I don't have that as an excuse no more. And then second change was like, you know, things around me were just changing. Like people were, I weren't close to certain people no more. I hadn't spoken to my mom and father, my mother and father, maybe in like, Three years or close to because we had fallen out because obviously I was just like, I was tired of them telling me to give up on my dreams, right? And so everything around me kind of went on hiatus almost. Like everything kind of stopped. And it was like, well, when I came to LA and I got given the opportunity, I had no no reason, there was nothing to hold me back. And so you went. So I moved. It was it was the easiest decision to make at that point, and so that. But I, but I always think about it. Would it, if I got that, then how easy would it have been? It pro- and it was. And when I say it was easy, it was easy to make the decision because I had nothing holding me back. Mm. <clears throat> but it was still a hard. It still took time to you know prepare my mind and tell the people and make the changes and hand over the house and. You know what I'm saying? It was shut the studio. We had a studio. We'd been in that studio since 2003. You know what I mean? 2003, four, five, six, seven, eight, five years of, maybe more, six years of our lives we'd spent in this particular studio. And so we were closing it down. 
it sounds crazy when you think about like, it. It's like, okay, I'm just going to close it and leave. Yes, we're leaving. And everybody thought it was a joke at first. Uh, because who does that, you know? You know? And uh, so that, it was really hard. So I can only imagine if I was still in that relationship and all the other pieces, I don't know if it would have been as easy or whether I would have been able to make that change. But those things had kind of departed, so it just it was like a good push. It feels like everything was kind of like just Oh, it was out. definitely lining up. Like, you got to say, two years before that, I we contemplated breaking up. And somehow, some way, we didn't. And then fast forward two years, she ended up waking up one day and just leaving. I was like, damn. And, you know, she just, it was weird. Crazy part is the day I fly back from L.A. and I've got this damn deal. Who's at the house? Who I ain't seen in like nine months. She back at the house. And it was like, you know, maybe we should give it another try. And I was just, I was like, whoa. Mm. That's a bit of a, I, was, I need a second. I, I, don't, I was still overwhelmed with the fact that this transition was happening in the yeah. first place. Like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And you, you came and you stayed in your Yeah, no, I don't regret I don't regret the choices. What What do you like most about living in L.A.? Uh, or just L.A.? L.A. took a long time for L.A. to become home. Don't, mm. like, it, like, L.A. was a culture shock in many ways. It was a culture shock, and my emotions struggled with it because I felt like I was on vacation a lot of the time. It's so sunny. It's, it does feel like a holiday, it whereas like, London can, can be so can, great. And you, can, and you can get a little caught up in that if mm. you're not careful. I, I watch a lot of people get caught up in the environment and mm. get caught up in the way. Because, you know, in England, you in England we didn't, you didn't just see celebrities walking around, right? In L.A., you like, that's, you just in a place and that's Mel Gibson or something. And some, people are cool. And, and you, you know what I'm saying? So was, you kind of can get caught up in it mm. and then they just have a different way of doing things. You know, the, the conversations and language barriers were there and... Um, they always give you that alien look like, you're from London, you know? And then being in the music industry was hard as well because culturally they don't know that we are just as intelligently savvy as they are mm -hmm. in the music. In, in music. So they also had limitations in accepting just like prejudice on a woman working on in a position is, mm -hmm. uh, what's this British black boy going to do? Mm -hmm. Like, He's going to do dance music. You know what I mean? They just had this perception that we were things that we weren't. So we had a lot of fighting to do out here. That's a lot know? to overcome, to change Yeah, mindsets. mentally, mentally. And then, you know, time difference. And then knowing how to emotionally connect with people because of the language barrier. And it's yes, we all speak English but there's still a language barrier. Like, okay. Because we the way I'm the way me and you might say a sentence might not sound the same to them, and vice versa. And we, or the lingo we use, like okay, when we say certain terms, they they look at like like what what that's not what I mean, bro. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know okay, what I'm let's back like, up. Let's break it down. It's just a it's a big language barrier. Yeah. Do you think there's any difference in particular being a black Brit in LA? Yes, being a black brand in L.A. is different, way different from just being a brand in L.A. Uh, why? Because you are not black enough in their minds. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're kind of like, you're not black enough. Or, yeah, you're from London, but you must have something in you. Like, 
Jamaican or something. Like, and it's they struggle with accepting you for who you are because mm-hmm. they's like, oh, it has to be mixed up somehow. And you know, because they've got their own oppressions out here, and they've mm-hmm. been through their own struggles, four hundred plus years of slavery, and so they've they've been living in a they've been living in a mindset for a period of time. I mean, I still get surprised that certain Black Americans don't realize that they are Black people black in people London. In <laughs> and they're like, they got Black people in London? I'm like, huh? Yes. <laughs> yes. The first year I was here, that was the first statement I said. And then it's like, oh, like, I'm like... That's hilarious. What did you think we would be? Like, <laughs> tea and, and, you know, it's like, do you drink tea and crumpets? And yeah. Like, nah, bruv, we, we eat regular food. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so I was definitely... Interesting. They, what were the advantages for me were people were willing to at least listen because I was different. Okay. Which wasn't the same in England. That's definitely an advantage. Because the moment they start hearing you talk, it's like, wait. He's not from here. What, what, why does he sound like that? Mm. And so they become more intrigued and then they want to know more. And then when they realize there's more than, you know, opportunities are given. You and know. Americans are great at just like, Ask it more yeah, and yeah. being interested in people. Yeah, I definitely yeah. Like that. they definitely do that. They definitely have that. Yeah. And was there any point in your like transition in your journey that you thought I can't do this? Yeah, every part of it. How did you overcome those times? Um, look, man, the first, the first, the first, the first over, the first thing I had to overcome was the people I love, my parents, hmm. telling me I couldn't be, I wasn't gonna make it. That was the first. I mean. Did they want me to be successful? Yes. Did they understand the type of success I wanted? No. Hmm. So their mindsets and limit their limit their mindsets were limited to what they could only see. Um, so I had to overcome that, <laughs> and then I had to overcome my environment because it's like my environment's telling me, "Nah, bro, <laughs> there's no way out." Hmm. You know what I mean? Hartford University, Tottenham, hmm. there's no way out. You can only go so far. I had to overcome that. And then I had to overcome friends. You know, those who, you got friends who just think you think too big. You got friends Mm. who are jealous because they want to hit the same dreams. You got friends who just are happy with the way they are, you know. So you had to overcome all that. And then you got relationships, you know, loved ones, people you care of. And then you got yourself. And you got to deal with your own doubts because all of those pieces play a role mm. in your mind, right? Yeah. And you're playing them over and over and over again. Your, your school teacher's being played in, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, one, I, I, I'm grateful that I had a relationship with God early due to my early church experiences. So I was able to converse with him a lot. Mm. Um, and he would always give me, like, oh, something to hold on to. And then I was always, as with all those negative infam- like connotations and, and things being thrown at you, I also got a lot of positive words too. So, like, I would have ministers just come out of the blue, like Miles Monroe, and just be like, you are going to be greater than me. I love me some Miles Monroe. Wait, who, me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. I'm like, What? You know what I'm saying? And there was and I had that a lot in my life and people would just be like, yo man, my boy Steven Tosh, like for years my brother uh funded our studio and it never made no sense. Like he's like he's walked up to me in church one day, he was like, I was like 18 years old. He's like, bro, I just wanna help you, man. 
It's like, you're just talented. Every time I see you, I'm blown away by your talent. I was like, bro, I'm only playing church on a Sunday. He saw something in And you. he saw it. And he was like, how can I help you? And I was like, uh, do you have a studio? I was like, no. Nah. I was like, do you, I can help you, like, get a studio. Serious. And, yeah, and that, that studio was the mm. studio we had for, like, six, seven years. You know what I'm saying? And Stephen funded that, most of it. You know what I'm saying? And And... It was just a blessing to necessarily have, like, help like that that kept me going. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's those things I held on to besides holding on to my dream every time I went to sleep. You know what I'm saying? I saw it in my head. I wrote those pictures down. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wrote, you know, I took notes. You know, I, I remember this was a big thing for me. 2014, I just bought my house. In, in 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 Valencia and I'm packing stuff and I find this booklet and in this booklet I open it up and I'm like yo I ain't seen this in years this is like 12 15 years old and this booklet it had like my business plan right like 10 pages of my business plan all the like business boxes publishing company this 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 and it was crazy what the studio was going to look like, everything. Seriously, you you wrote your dream out. Right. But what was crazy was, like, I've achieved this. Like, everything I had written out, I had basically had. craziest part about it was the only thing that changed were the names. Everything else was there, intact. The building was intact. The structure was intact. The only thing that changed was the name. You put your vision on paper. That's yeah. powerful. Yeah, man. And it came true. And it came to life. I got... I got the biggest vision board on my wall right now, like huge, just like as big as that in my office. And I go there and I just stare at it. And it's like, there's things on there like, what? What? You want one of those? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's like, I just know what it takes. And, you know, uh, seeing it every day and believing it every day is one thing. Working, work, working on it every day is a whole nother thing. Is there anything now that you're, like, seriously working towards that you can share? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's loads of things. Like, you know, uh, I, I just started. I'm, I'm in the restaurant business now. So we own a restaurant called Fellow over in Brentwood. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily a foodie, but I just love what the environment of a restaurant does. It, it brings people in together. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and one of my biggest dreams is to own an African chain. Um, Afro-Caribbean chain of restaurants across the across the country and across the world because I feel like, you know, they like to split those up being that I come from both sides and I have both sides. I, I think it's an injustice that I have to go to a Caribbean restaurant to eat Caribbean food and an African restaurant to eat African food. So I really want to open a chain of Afro-Caribbean Afro-Caribbean restaurant where you can sell both, you know, salt fish, ackee and salt fish and jollof rice. I'm ready to eat some jollof rice with some stew chicken. I'll just let you know. I'm putting my hands up to be your taste tester. And some chin-chin, please. I love chin-chin. How the hell to make it, yeah. I mean, like, imagine you could have a jollof rice and a Jamaican bay. That's, yes. that's beautiful. You know what I mean? Um, and I just, like I said, slavery and history is kind of like, split us up 
And we have so much in common as a culture, mm. like, you know, Caribbeans, Africans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, music is obviously kind of bringing us together. Yeah, we're blending now more than more ever. More than ever. And so now culture and our food is just as important. And mm. to have social places that culture itself can unite, such as luxury restaurants, um, I think does does shift something in the culture. I like that. I'm ready for that. Yeah. I'm ready for it too. I've been wanting one for years. Plus, in Los Angeles, they are far and few between. So I'm trying to. Yeah, I heard there aren't too many great then, Caribbean uh, places or, right now, or, or African, African places. places. But yeah, but, uh, so yeah, in there, and then you know we got our label now. Well, we've always always had my label, but you know we, we are official. You know we got our acts, and you know building our empire. Boe is our label, yeah. and um, we're really in, are really pushing that dynamic right now and building that brand. Um, I'm in the tequila business now, Vuelo. That's what's up. You know what I mean? So really excited about diversifying. And, you know, we have a publishing company called Perfect Songs. And so with diversifying and kind of getting involved in different, you know, we have a shoe company called Sohu where we repair and refine sneakers because a lot of people like those sneakers away. And it's like, well, you could spend 60 bucks on repairing a pair of sneakers or a pair of shoes red bottoms and get them looking brand new mm -hmm. then spend a thousand dollars every time that's a big market it's a big market right so i'm i'm invested in his company soul hue and then shout out to my boy brooks with his clothing line company called uh square bear how many what are you doing you're doing it all i don't know if i'm <laughs> I doing love it. it i don't know if you're it's, doing a lot though it's you great. know what you know what i'm doing so with drew with drew and 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 brooks and a few other young people is i just remember being 20 years old with all these dreams and this young man coming up to me and saying, what can I do to help you? And mm. even though it wasn't $100,000, it, it gave me a platform to be who I am today, yeah. right? And I've always said I wanted to do that for someone else. Mm -hmm. I think definitely being an entrepreneur can be a real roller coaster ride. And typically, like, when you start your first business, you're learning so much about business right. and about yourself. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about why you set up your own label, label and what you learned about the business? Um, what you learned about yourself? Yeah, so the first thing, you know, when I first came out, you know, I thought I wanted to just be a music producer. I wanted to be the best producer in the country. Everybody hears my beats and knows I'm the best. Uh, that was very small thinking when I when I moved to Los Angeles because it wasn't even about beat making. It was not even about beat making. Um, and as I've become, <laughs> the older I get, and the more uh, in love with the industry I become, uh, I realized beat making was just a tool. It wasn't the fact. It wasn't who I was. It was just a part of my thing, right? It was another gift, another, you know, special move that I have. Oh, he makes beats too, just like he songwrites. And, you know, but it, I, it wasn't a defining me. Mm -hmm. um, what made me go into it was I started to see and understand the politics. And one of the things I understood was, though I'm very inspired by these people, uh, Jimmy Iovine, Clive Davis, Jay-Z, L.A. Reid, and so many more other people, uh, Barry Gordy, uh, they were all great men, not because of who they were, but what they did. Mm -hmm. And what they did was create platforms for greater people to come through, mm -hmm. right? Um, and platforms in which are those people who came from it, like Motown, 
talking Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, The Four Tops, The Temptations. Would they necessarily have existed? I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. And and because we live in a world which is full of judgment, right? And so you could look at someone and say, I don't think that's a star. And just literally shut them down, right? Which is kind of what happens. And then Barry Gordy doesn't see that, though. He sees a star and he puts his stamp on it and they become the greatest stars in the world, mm-hmm. right? Jimmy Iovine, the same thing. Clive Davis over and over again. He got fired three times from three different companies and recreate. you know, Columbia moved to Arista, started, started Arista, mm-hmm. fired him, went to start another company called J Records and continuously just kept making great artists. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I want to continues, continually make great artists and great music for the artists and give hope to artists who have been told no so many times. Mm-hmm. This this music industry can be very jaded. And I was mm-hmm. I was one of those artists. I was one of those kids who was told no all the time because either I was too good or I wasn't good enough mm-hmm. or, you know what I'm saying? Or it can be brutal. It, 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 it can be really brutal. And if you don't find hope and belief in someone, your dreams can end up tr- trashed down. And uh, I just don't believe that some people are supposed to be told no. And so I'm kind of like the locksmith who kind of like goes around unlocking like doors to dreams and like go through and go live your dream and so that's what this label's about you know what I mean we're just giving hope and unlocking dreams and going yo you could do it you could do it you could do it you could do it and and what's happening now is because we've done that a couple of times I'm looking back and there's a queue there's a line outside mm-hmm. like <laughs> do me too because you did some great work like with Major yeah yeah oh my god this is why I love you I love that song why wow, I love you it, can you believe that song came from that song came from him playing on Instagram, calling it chicken salad sandwich. For real? Like, that's what it came from. So he was on, I told his story all the time, and I find it funny because I'm just like, he was on Instagram, and someone was playing the piano in the background, and he was just on Instagram, and they said, Major, you hungry? He said, chicken salad sandwich. I need a chicken salad sandwich. No way. Because... I'm hungry. So that's how, what he sang, right? And he sang it just like he sang the record. Mm. So I'm like, what is that? That I was like blown away, like blown away. And I'm hoping that it's not someone else's record. Like mm-hmm. I'm hoping like that's his. And he goes, no, I was just fooling around. It's dope, right? I'm like, yeah, it's dope. Take it down. He's like, why? It's going viral. Why? We should give it to Chick-fil-A. I said, Chick-fil-A, bro, <laughs> this song's going to change your life. <laughs> Take it down. <laughs> so he takes it down and then comes to the studio and I shut the door. I'm like, think, this could be the song that breaks your career. An hour later, I found love in you. This is why I love you. And the, song's, the song comes alive. I went gold. It was almost platinum now. Okay. And we did it independently. And so he was kind of like, he, you know, he's like, he's our, he's our, he's our, he's our main guy. You know what I mean? In the sense of he was, you know, we started with him. We started this, we started the, the independent label look with him. We took our risk. We took our all bets and we, we, we ran with it. And, uh, 
to see him, you know, he had a lot of things that were working against him, his mm-hmm. age, uh, society, the way the music industry was in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, the streaming services kicking in, labels not necessarily involved in anything but hip-hop. So we in a, you know, rock and a hard place, and we just had to trust our guts, and um, we did a, a, a distribution partnership with Empire at the time. And, uh, yeah, his life ain't never been the same since. The rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. I love the fact that you followed your dreams mm. and you were persistent and people kind of gave you opportunities along the way, but at the same time, still, you had hardships. Yeah. And you... You helped Major with his dream. Yeah. And we're, we're telling him now. We got we to help everybody with their dreams. I mean, that's the whole point. You got you got to pass the baton. You just got to pass it on. It's, you can't hold on to it. You're going to you're gonna get tired. You want me to run. You can't finish that race without passing the baton on. You know what I mean? The same with my brothers. You know, I, once I saw I was here, I, I knew, I was like, they next. They need to come out mm. here next. And, and now they're here and, you know, they just... They work. They just did a song with Justin Bieber on a new album, and okay. working with Trey songs, and you know, doing Rich Thirty Two. They've done three Rich albums. <laughs> Executive okay. produced three Rich albums. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm proud because you know I get to see the dreams come true that were once told to us they weren't possible. Mm. You know what I'm saying? They they told me it wasn't possible, and so and they witnessed it. And so now, not only do they see their big brother succeeding, but they are now walking in success too, and they are able to pass it on. That's beautiful. Yeah. So it's a it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I'm I'm also I'm, like that's it. It's just to inspire people. And I will say, <clears throat> I feel like myself, Alex the Kid, Dreddy, and a few other UK guys, ten years ago, twelve years ago, have busted the door open for other UK producers, writers, and, and artists to have the same opportunity. You know, when we did that Chipmunk record with Chris Brown Champion, I was unheard of. Mm. Like that, it was unheard of. It was like first of its kind. But it woke people up to get out of their comfort zone mm-hmm. and push. It's one of the biggest selling records in grime history, you know? For grime art, it's one of the biggest selling records. And... It made Tiny and everybody else want to step up their game, look forward. We've got Stormzy's now. We've got Steph London's now. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know what I'm saying? We've got UK MCs. We've got gigs. We've got Skeppy. I mean, well, give a, give credit to where credit's due. Skepta, firstly, we shared studios, studio floors. So my room was down the hall from his. And, you know, that boy worked hard. You know, this was a hardworking boy. You know what I'm saying? Outside of... The life he really did live, he was not fronting. Like they're not pretending. Uh, they worked hard. They mm. him and his brothers. They worked hard, you know. And and to see him succeed and do well excites me. You know what I mean? Because not only did my dream come true, but I watched the. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm watching, you know, GQ, and I see my man on the front. A GQ years later, yeah, I thought, I fifteen that. years later with Naomi Cass, like blew me away. Just blew me away, and I was just like, it's yeah, groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking, you know. But, but, it, but it, we had to push the barriers, man. We had to, we had, to, we had to smash a couple windows and and break out of boxes to allow people to see that they can. Like, and my brother says it on the shoulder, on the shoulders of giants, you would see far. 
Like, I'm not a millionaire or a successful individual because I did anything necessarily superhuman that nobody's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Producers make hits all the time. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an anomaly in that, right? But from where I came from and the environment I was born in, I'm an anomaly because I was able to defeat a mindset and a system that was sent to keep us thinking a particular way. Mm-hmm. Right. And we were supposed to have children with that mindset and teach them the same thing. And then they were going to have children. You know what I'm saying? I broke that. I broke that curse. And so that's what makes me an anomaly. That's I want what, a hand clap right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's what takes me out of norm, the norm. That's it. I chose to be successful even though life told me no. Like, even mm-hmm. though life was looking at me like I was broke, I had no money. I was like trying to figure it out. I said, I'm, you have to kill me. That's the only way you, this is gonna not gonna happen, is death. That's nuggets right there. You know what I'm saying? Until and because I I just I would never forget, and it's something that happens inside of you when you decide, mm-hmm. right? One thing I definitely and that's why when people offend me or disrespect me, pol- or politely disrespect me, I never get. I I take that anger and I use it because and I think we all need it. I think we all need disrespect every once in a while because because it's a slap right it's Mm -hmm. like a little and I remember walking to home one night and it was like sunny day walking home and you know London it's like two o'clock in the morning I'm walking home so it's a 30 minute 25 minute walk and I'm walking home like I can knock it out you know it's a beautiful it was a beautiful day it's not that cold at night so I'm walking home two o'clock in the morning and as I'm going home it starts raining and I'm like in shorts and a t-shirt and I'm pissed because I'm like, I'm too far to go back and I'm, I and I just, I gotta go home. And I'm just standing in the middle of the rain and I'm just like, like I'm like the, the loudest, rageous scream came out of me. And I said, I'm not doing this no more. I said, F this, today's the last day. I'm not doing it. And my demeanor from that internal thing, that internal rage of uh, this change in today made everything change. Like, it was like Mother Nature was like, and now you're ready to go. And and it was weird because that something in my mindset elevated and something in my mindset died at the same time. And uh, everything changed. And my mindset changed. I wasn't having it. And it was like people could tell, too, because I could hear their conversation was different. People was talking to you different. I was like, okay. That's powerful. Mm. That's that's incredible. You were just sick of it. You were done. You're like, right, okay, let's move. Let's go. Let's just go, go. keep it moving. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, Harmony, you're in America now. Yeah. But I want to test you <laughs> on how much you know about what's happening back home because, you know, I like to keep things fun. Yeah, what do I know about home? You know loads. Well, let's see. So it's a 60-second quiz. Okay. And I'm going to take your first answer, okay? All right, start. Okay. How much is a single adult bus fare in London? Five pound. What's the name of the Arsenal Stadium? <laughs> I don't know, and I support them. I'm ashamed. Okay, what tube line is, a ch- is Chancery Lane Station on? The black one. Name, Northern line, Northern line. Name a chicken shop on Brixton Road. <laughs> Morley's. Okay, name three London airports. Gatwick, Heathrow, and Luton. How much is a Freddo chocolate bar? 
A pound. Who's the mayor of London? Don't know. <laughs> Name the pub in EastEnders. I don't know, I can't remember, I can't remember. How many tube station zones are there? Seven. Where's the M&M store? M&M store? Don't know. What's the last stop on the 41 bus? <laughs> I don't know. Where, where was the 2012 Olympics held? Uh, London. East London. All right, well, we're out of time. We've got a couple of seconds over. So every horrible. Yeah. Well, let's see. So a single, how much is a single adult bus fare in London? You said five pounds. It's one pound fifty. Dude, inflation has been crazy, but not that crazy. Don't worry, I won't judge you. Someone said they was like the travel card was like five pounds. For a travel card, maybe like a maybe a one day bus pass. I don't know how much that costs, but for to get the bus just one way. It's one pound fifty. That's not bad. I think that's expensive because when I was in school, it was like, it was like 50, fifty pence. <laughs> was also fifty p to go to school and thirty p to come home. That's true. Arsenal Stadium, dude. It's the Emirates. You're gonna kick yourself. Chancery Lane. You said it's on the Northern Line. It's on the red one, which is the Central Line. Uh, chicken shop on Brixton Road. Morley's. Hey, we got that. Can't go wrong with a bit of Morley's. Free London Airports. You said Gatwick, Heathrow and Luton. Yes. Three points there. A Freddo chocolate bar is one pound. I'm sorry, it's not one pound. It's 30p. What? Yeah, but it used to be like, was it 5p? It's 30 pence. Yeah. Which is expensive, dude, because it used to be like, I think it was about 5p. Sadiq Khan is the mayor of London. Um, the pub in EastEnders. You were close because you said Royal Alberts. You were going for the square with the Queen Vic. Yeah, the Queen Vic. Queen Vic is the pub in EastEnders. I haven't watched EastEnders in 15 years. Me either, and I live in England. Um, I hope they still got the same old faces. I'm telling you, you could just tune in and just catch up really quickly. There are nine tube station zones. Tube zones. I didn't, I didn't, you said seven. No, I went for uh, I looked it up, I actually thought it was like five. So you were close. Uh, the M&M store is in Leicester Square. What's an M&M store? You know M&M the chocolates? They got a store? Yeah, they got a whole entire store. See, it's I actually quite cool. Yeah, I mean, you taught me that they cut, shut down Chocaderos. My heart was broken. Yo, I'm sad. I'm still sad. Chocaderos? Yeah, I don't know what young people do these I did a lot, I did a lot, like, A, a lot of chirps in? <laughs> Chuckers was my place, mate. It was my place. I'm surprised I didn't bump into you there. Chuckers was my place, man. That was my escape yeah. from home. R.I.P. Um, R.I.P. Chuckers. <laughs> um, the last the last stop on the 41 bus. I asked you this because of growing up in North London. Yeah. You could have either said Archway or Tottenham. Yeah, you're right. It is Tottenham. I looked that one up specifically for you because you're from North London. What was the Chancery Lane one? A Chancery Lane Station is on the Central Line. Central. Yeah. Uh, the last question, uh, where was the 2012 Olympics held? It was in Stratford, but I'll take East London. So your top score is... Da, 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 five in 60 seconds. You are our leader. Good. You're leading right now. I'm glad. Um. So last question, Harmony. Do you have any advice for listeners wanting to chase their dreams? Oof. First advice, go with the win. And, and when I say that, I say that with a lot of respect 
meaning go with what God has. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mother Nature and God know you better than you do. So sometimes your passion to want to be somewhere can be the exact thing that's fighting against where you need to be. Mm. So that's the one, one, one thing I'll say, obedience to the voice is the biggest rule to success, right? Second, know who you really want to be. It is true, your gift will make way. The problem is we have multiple gifts, so you have to isolate which gift you're going to focus on first, right? Like, I had multiple gifts. I was good at soccer. I was good at sports. I was Football. I, football. Yeah, thank <laughs> you, Americans. Uh, I was good at athletics. I, I ran a 11-second 100, and I had opportunities to go pro with them both. And music was my love, so I chose to do the music. No matter how long it took me, I was going to do it in music. Having a, having your hands full initially can be a very big distraction. Mm. And if my mother says this all the time. If you've got five things to do in one hour, you can only focus 20% on each thing. So at no point do you give anything 100%. I will say most of my career, I gave my music 100%. And now I'm at the point that I can diversify because now I can just do music without thinking about it. And so that's one of the most, like, focus on your main gift, right? And then I think the third is do not be limited by your environment. Mm -hmm. That comes in multiple ways. The first thing is don't be limited by the environment you were born and raised in. For instance, us, London. I couldn't allow London to, to limit who where I was born, to limit we from becoming successful because of where I was born and the mindset and the... You know, because my father and my mother, I can't. I, I look at them like, damn, I get it now. You was never gonna know. You was never gonna understand. You, 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 you you're the best thing that happened to your family because you got this far. Mm -hmm. So, for me, where I was trying to go, you ain't. You, it's hard for you to see that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, it's not your fault. You just didn't know. And so. I had to kind of break away to show you and kind of hopefully direct you, right? And so my father says, it's like, you're the first millionaire I know. It's like an incredible feeling to know that. Mm. But his parents said he was the first person to leave his house, get married, and actually have a real family situation. You know what I'm saying? And he was, the, he was his first in some sense. Mm. Your birth home, never allow it to limit you. But also when you transition... Never get too comfortable where you transition to. Mm -hmm. So LA's my home right now, but it's not where I, it ends. There's there's more to it. It's a, there's a bigger picture, and so I've been kind of almost like bags packed, ready to dive into the next ocean because there's more. And sometimes we get no, no, no. I'm cool right here, and it's like nah, bro. Like <laughs> there's a whole nother world you could that needs you. Mm. and need your gift. And uh, sometimes people get comfortable with the little that they achieve and they don't want to ever expand it. And then uh, they kind of settle. And so I guess the last one is never settle. Never settle for anything less than the greatest you can be. I always say when I die, I want to be depleted of everything in me. Like I want to say I did it all. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I gave it 110% every day. Like when people saw like... Our harms gave it 
even when he was 80 years old, he did not stop. Mm. Um, rest in peace, Kobe. And it's sad to see him go. My heart breaks for his family. Mm. And that's how, that's how I want to live. I want to empty myself out and know, you know, I did it. I didn't. I did all I can, and hopefully that inspires some other young kid to wake up one day that was stuck in the middle of Dartford, London, and be like, "I'm just like him." You know what I mean? And hopefully he can do more and surpass me. You know. That's powerful. That's mm. absolutely incredible. I think there's so much that can be taken from today and from your journey and your advice and. Your journey is still continuing because yeah. you're still going hard. Well, so. hopefully we can we, we come back 10 years from now and we talk about it again. All right. Yeah. I like that. Let's put it in the diary. In the diary. Oh, Harmony, thank you so much for catching up with me today. Thank you. It was oh, amazing. This was, this was really helpful. Yeah. And, um, it was an honour. I'm sure that there's loads that people can take from today, take from, from hearing you. Thank you. So that's all for today's episode, sadly. And thanks to you listeners for tuning in. I feel inspired. My takeaway from today's episode, I think I really love Harmony's tenacity and, you know, that determination to just keep going and taking those no's and saying, you know what, I'm going to gush myself beyond these no's. What did you think of today's episode? I want to hear your feedback. So if you have a favourite quote or line from today's episode, share this in a post on your socials and tag us. On Instagram, our page is dreamchaserspodcast underscore. And on Facebook, our page is dreamchaserspodcast. Is there anyone you think would be interested and inspired to chase their dreams by this episode? Then share the love. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast. We're also on Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio Podcast, and all other great platforms. I'd love for you to write a review on Apple Podcasts. What's your dream? I'd love to hear them. Let me know. This has been the Dream Chasers Podcast, supported by Bel Air. Tune in for the next exciting episode, where we'll be catching up with another inspiring dream chaser. 